This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. The work of female artists has been historically undervalued, but why? Art history itself has been a huge problem. Art history has done a, a, a shocking amount of damage to our understanding of female artists. The Royal Academy of Arts in London, one of the most major museums in the world, they've still never had an exhibition by a woman artist in their main space. Next year will be the first with Marina Abramovich, but it's taken over 250 years. I mean, how many women artists did you know? Because when I was 21 setting up that account, I probably couldn't have named more than 20. And that's an art history student. Prices for art by female artists has consistently been considerably lower than for male artists. For example, the YBA group of artists who came to prominence in London in the 1990s. Probably the two key names that most people would connect with that group are Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin. And Tracy Emin's top price ever achieved at auction is around £2.5 million, while Damien Hurst is £9.6 million. In this latest episode in the Futureverse series from Intelligence Squared and Ytree, we set out to explore how this historic gender imbalance came about, what it means, and whether it's changing. Search Futureverse on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and join us as we ask, is the future of art female? Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. On today's episode, Ukraine's best-known novelist, Andrei Kirchhoff. The writer joins us to speak about life, literature, and the war in Ukraine, as well as the complexities of Ukrainian identity. Andrei Kirchhoff has been hailed as a latter-day Bulkakov and a Ukrainian Murakami. His works are injected with an absurdist sense of the oddities of life, but with the unfolding events in Ukraine this year, his fictional reflections on conflict in his nation have become ever more pertinent. 
Our host for today is the BBC's chief international correspondent, Lise Doucette, who has been covering the conflict in Ukraine since it unfolded in February. Here's Lise with more. Our gathering tonight is called, uh, poetically, Life, Literature and the War in Ukraine. So much about Andrei Kurkov's life has been about literature, and now, tragically, it is so much about war. He was born near Leningrad, raised in Kyiv, a proud Ukrainian, a native Russian speaker who writes in Russian, and even his bio hints at the complexity of Ukraineness, what it means to be Ukrainian. And I, I think I speak for many of us here in this gathering tonight that since the beginning of the Russian invasion on February the 24th, many of us, including me since I was in Kyiv then, have been learning about Ukrainian identity and independence from Andrei Kurkov. Ukrainian's greatest novelist suddenly found himself forced to, to be shifting from fiction to nonfiction, to history in the making. And I started following him on Twitter, which I hope many of you do, for a different take on this devastating war. His tweets were a thread of a nation's cultural life being ripped apart and yet still standing tall and defiant. The story of Ukraine. Before all of this, of course, there were his acclaimed novels, including Death and the Penguin. It's um, an international bestseller. Uh, translated into more than 30 languages. More recently, Grey Bees, which has been translated into English and updated this year with a very timely foreword. And with this turn of a writer's life he never expected and certainly never wanted, his latest book is nonfiction. Diary of an Invasion has just been published. And just as unexpectedly, he has become the most peripatetic of ambassadors, touring the world to make a case for Ukraine. So we're glad that we pinned you down, Andrei Kurkov. And I, I have to say, but to, to bring you all into this little, uh, an exchange I had with Andrei just before uh, we started this session, I told him that I read in a, in a profile of him that someone had said his smile was so bright that it could light up San Sofia's cathedral. And he laughed because he actually lives next to San Sofia's cathedral. And any of you who have been to Ukraine, you will know the majesty of this uh, cathedral. And if you haven't been, do Google it afterwards and you'll see. For now, let's focus on being together. We're going to be together for about an hour. For the first 40 minutes or so, I'll be in conversation with Andre, and then we'll take your questions. So let's begin. Andre Kirchhoff, I must first ask you the question, which must be on everyone's mind and most of all yours. After President Putin's thinly veiled nuclear threats last week, after the so-called referendum in Russian-occupied territories, after a partial mobilization in Russia, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, I'm trying to drink herbal tea instead of coffee. I think, actually, I mean, Ukrainians were expecting this kind of uh, developments and it just shows that Putin understands he is losing the war. I don't know. I mean, with tactical nuclear weapons, you, you can blow them up. Yes, you can uh, destroy the air, destroy a couple of cities. But, I mean, you cannot break Ukrainians. And actually, Putin is responsible for Ukrainians to become a very defiant nation. He was shaping 
uh, Ukrainian identity from 2005, from the Orange Revolution. So when he is dead, maybe somebody will say thanks to him, but it will be probably in 200 years' time when Busha, Gastomel and Kharkiv are forgotten, or not forgotten, but I mean they are in the school books of history. Yeah, well, it's nice to hear you're drinking herbal tea. That's very good for the health, long life. But you might be drinking something a little bit, a uh, little bit stronger because you, like everyone else, is a bit worried that this is going to drag on and on and become, to use their horrific, that terrible expression of a forever war. Well, I think uh, I also thought actually uh, that this war can be frozen and will become another Donbass war. But the difference will be that before 24th of February we had. 430 kilometers of front line and of gray zone. And now we have probably 2,000 kilometers. But I mean, to keep 2,000 kilometers long front line going, you, you need actually uh, probably two or three million from each side. So it's, uh, it's unlikely that this war will be frozen, this uh, front line which exists now. And... Uh, Obviously, I mean, the events in Russia are speeding up. Uh, I mean, he is in a hurry. I mean, he is competing with the history. He wants to go faster than the history goes, but it will never happen. I mean, there is a very good joke now in Ukraine regarding the nuclear threat uh, that uh, Ukrainians are not only ready for the end of the world, they have already some plans uh, for the time after this. <laughs> This is you gave us a little that little um, little gem that of Ukrainian humor, which is helping people to try to get through this uh, terrible war. And this this is a war which has upended so many of our ideas and assumptions about war, about the Russian military, about the Ukrainian people, but also about culture. And you have said that the war has shown you the importance of culture during a war, which of course dominates everything, destroys so much. Why does culture become so important? Well, culture is part of identity, actually. And this war also is against Ukrainian identity. And in this sense, this war is going on for 400 years. Because the first time Ukrainian identity was attacked, it was, I think, 1715 or something after Poltava battle, which was in 2009, when Peter the Great crashed Ukrainian forces which were supported again by Swedish king Karl XII. And after that, he signed a decree banning Ukrainian religious books in Ukrainian language. So, I mean, culture, history, and language are making the identity. Identity creates the link between people and the land they are living on, between them and the country. And so if you destroy this link, if you destroy the culture, if you force everybody to speak Russian then people lose this identity, they lose the link with their land, they understand that this is not their land, this is land of Russian Empire, and they can be moved to Sakhalin, to Siberia, and should feel at home there. So, I mean, th this is the reason of uh, uh, libraries being uh, destroyed, and now actually libraries are censored in the occupied territories. I mean, the books of not only school books, Ukrainian school books, but also books by Ukrainian contemporary writers are taken out as extremist literature. But you have said, though, that war and books are incompatible. And yours 
has been a life of books. You write books, but you've been anything but unemployed. No, no, no. I mean, uh, I'm very happy. I mean, as a writer, I'm very happy. I mean, at the age of 13, somebody told me that writers don't go to work, they stay at home, and I decided to become a writer, but I managed to become a writer only at the age of 36, and now I'm 61, and I, I think I, I, I got what I wanted. But, uh, I mean, the books are not published and not much read during the war. And actually, one of the victims of this war is uh, publishing industry, it's not only that writers cannot publish their books, it's the publishers actually have to look for the books that survived bombings. Because, I mean, my publisher, Folio, in Kharkiv, they had their print works bombed in Dergachi, in town Dergachi, between Kharkiv and Russian border, 20 kilometers from the border. So, actually, he sent people to recover what was left from the books just published as well as the paper, which was not damaged and was not used, was also found and it was taken to Western Ukraine to be used. But you were working, I understand, on a new novel as the war began in February. So you've had to shelve it, but you think you'll have to throw it in the bin because it will no longer be the book you want to write? Oh, no, 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 no bin, no bin around my table. <laughs> Actually, I mean, this book I want to write, I want to finish, and this is the third book in a series about events in Ukraine and in Kyiv in 1919. In the, actually, the events which are quite similar, because from 1918, Russian Bolsheviks were trying to occupy Ukraine to erase Ukrainian independentist movement. Ukraine announced its independence in 1918, and it was independent for some months with the government, with the head of the government, with the speaker of the parliament. Uh, and uh, the Russians, actually, the Bolsheviks, had four attempts to occupy Ukraine. And from the fourth attempt, they succeeded in 1921. And then Ukraine became Soviet Republic. But generally, I mean, what I write is a, a historic crime story, but I put lots of unknown things and details of daily life in the novel. So for me, it is historical book. But for the readers, it will be actually adventure crime story, but with the depiction of real events and real crazy absurdities that were brought by, by the Bolsheviks to Kiev's life. Like, for example, one of the things they did, they introduced underwear tax. Every Kiev's family had to give to Red Army soldiers' trip three pairs of underwear, and it was not important whether they are female or male because the soldiers had no underwear. There was a furniture tax. Uh, every family was said that they have right to have only one chair per, per member of the family and one chair for guests. Everything else should be confiscated and put into the offices of the new Soviet power. In fact, actually, in 1918, Bolsheviks were attacking Kiev from the same side from northern western side from Belarus, and they were bombing central part of Kiev from Svetoshin district. It's the same, actually, is the direction of Bucha and Gastomi, which were devastated by Russian aggressors now. Well, even those, those, just those little snippets you've shared with us makes all of us eager to see this, this novel finished. And your, your books, um, anyone here who has read any of your books, and I'm sure many have, you delve back into history. You, you use this phrase about recuperating history, and you do so with all of the absurdities and oddities of life. But now suddenly there is history in the making, and you have your latest book 
is a factual book or, or a nonfiction diary of the invasion. So this is a new genre for you, but for you, what literary cultural value does it have for you as a writer? Well, I mean, I was trying to, uh, to write these essays as my diary entries, but much wider. I mean, I, I was and I am collecting stories. I'm in touch with lots of people. I mean, until end of June, we were living in Western Ukraine with my wife. My, our youngest son was in Kiev. Our friends were even under occupation and we were managing to send messages from Melitopol and Kherson. So, I mean, I was getting these stories and I, I, I was digesting them. I was actually putting them on the paper, on the screen of the computer, but uh, through my own eyes, sort of actually trying to understand and to put things together and to find tendencies and what is typical for this time. I mean, some of the stories uh, are still going on. I mean, like uh, I mentioned very often, my friend who is quite old, who is 92 now, Valentin, who just had his legs amputated before the war because of diabetes. And he was abandoned practically on the top floor of the hospital in central Kiev. And then his wife was fighting to move him down where there were more nurses and more doctors. And then they were waiting for possibility to be evacuated. And now I visit them. I visited them twice, actually, recently in Germany. They are now in Mainz, but dreaming about coming to Kiev. And I wish I could accompany them on this journey back to Kiev. It won't be easy and it won't be tomorrow. Wow, wow. There's so many, so many stories of so much suffering inside the country and, and suffering outside for those who've been forced to, to leave. Let's look, we're going to turn now to look at two of your novels. So let's look at this evocatively titled Grey Bees. It was published in 2018. It was set in 2017 and it now seems even more pertinent than other than ever after Russia's invasion. So in brief, it tells the story of Sergei. He's a retired mine safety inspector. He's an ethnic Russian, and he lives in a small village in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. And his life is upended by Russia's 2014 invasion and the fighting between Moscow-backed separatists and Ukrainian forces. And he, like many others, finds himself in a bind. He's alienated from Russia, despite his Russian heritage, and he's an object of suspicion among Ukrainians because of that heritage. So this between Ukrainian, Russian, so many different uh, tangled threads, that seems to be very much the story of Ukrainians today. Well, for some part of Ukrainians, of course, especially for Russian speakers and for those who live in the south and in the east of the country. But uh, I wouldn't call them guilty of this or I wouldn't criticize them. It's quite uncomfortable, I mean, for many intellectuals now to speak Russian, to write in Russian, but at the same time, Russian is not privatized by Kremlin, and Russian became one of the world languages. But it is difficult to separate Russian language now from the language, official language of Russian army. And as you know, maybe, that uh, Russian language is the official language of all Russian prisons. If you Kalmyk or Buryat or uh, Armenian, and you want to write a letter to your friend or your family member in Russian prison, you, ha you can write only in Russian because otherwise it will be destroyed or returned. So this issue will remain and the discussions about Russian language in Ukraine will remain and probably will remain also heated. But Sergei actually is more under suspicion because he is one of the inhabitants of Donbass. 
and Ukrainian politicians in the beginning, and then they were supported by some Russian so-called liberals like Zhirinovsky, they created these two cliches which damaged so much internal relationship in Ukraine. They, I mean, the cliches is, number one, is that all people from Donbass are criminals and bandits, and the cliche number two is that all, all inhabitants of Western Ukraine are extreme right, radicals, nationalists, and uh, hate everybody who speaks Russian. So, I mean, I think actually nobody now talks about this cliche, but they, they settled in the heads of many people in Ukraine, and the mistrust was there, especially among the intellectuals. So tell us, tell us a little bit about Sergei, this, this character that you have created. He's one of the last residents living in this, what's called this gray zone. So it's three years after Russian troops or the Russian-backed separatists took over areas of the Donbass. Many people fled, but Sergei is still there living. I think he's one of two people living in his village because he says, well, someone has to say. So tell us a little bit about the character of Sergei that you've created and you want us to know about. First of all, actually, they live in the gray zone. And uh, I wasn't going to write this book at all. I didn't want to write about the war. But what happened that uh, after 2014, we got a lot of refugees and resettlers from Donbass and Kyiv. And we got also middle-class inhabitants of Donetsk who decided to do small business in Kyiv and live in Kyiv because they didn't want to live on separatist territories. And one of them actually opened a small cafe uh, on the outskirts of Kyiv. And I met him at my friend's apartment for a party. And he told me that every month he goes by car practically to the front line because there there is a village with only seven families uh, remaining and everybody else abandoned the village. And there is no shop, no electricity, no post, no authority, no police in this village. So they are surviving, trying to grow potatoes and vegetables, pickling them, but they don't have access to medicine. So he brings them medicine, or he was bringing them medicine or whatever they were asking him for. And in exchange, they would give him some pickles. And I understood, actually, that he was talking about gray zone, and I found a map, so military war map, and I understood that, actually, the gray zone it has the same length as a front line. At that time, it was 430 kilometers, and in this gray zone, which was sometimes several hundred meters wide, sometimes several kilometers wide, in this zone, actually, there were dozens of villages. Some of them were empty. Some of them were almost full because, I mean, they thought they, they are safe. And uh, a lot of them were almost abandoned, actually. And this village that I described uh, had only or has only two remaining inhabitants the same age, who hated each other from the from childhood, but now have to deal with each other, almost friendly. And Sergei, what is important about him, he is beekeeper. Yeah, I mean, he was abandoned by his wife and his daughter. They went to live in a big city in Vinica. He remained with his six uh, beehives, six bee families. He is looking after them, and in the beginning of the war, he is defending them from both sides because probably subconsciously he feels that he is also a bee. Because actually, people of Donbass, they were like bees. I mean, uh, and actually, he respects bees because he thinks they are the only human, not human beings, but living beings that managed to create communist society because they work hard, they produce honey, they never complain, they are not paid. And I mean, this was like people in Donbass, uh, <laughs> in the Soviet Union. So, so uh, 
he is looking after them, and actually his dream is after he understands that actually the war is influencing, in a negative sense, the taste of honey, he wants to take them on holiday in the summer away from the war. And this is also some kind of road movie. But generally, he is a normal person. He knows what is good, what is bad. He is not intellectual. He is not neither pro-Russian nor pro-Ukrainian in the beginning. But, I mean, the situations he finds himself in force him to understand what is happening, especially when he goes to Crimea. By the way, this is the only and the first book where Crimea after annexation is described. And there's so many things about uh, Sergei that he uh, symbolizes. You talk about this, the order and cohesion of the, of the beehives. And if I understood correctly, it gives Sergei this sense of nostalgia for the order of the of the Soviet past, whereas now everything is chaos and, and confusion. But it is when he travels to Crimea that he suddenly is awakened to the abuses and the, the horror of this, the state violence from Russia. I think actually sort of he, he, he used only to differentiate uh, between good and evil, between black and white, or between, I would say, gray and white. Because, I mean, the first time I went to Donbass, it was uh, long before the war, uh, I was shocked by the lack of calories. Uh, because, I mean, the mentality of people in Donbass remained collective Soviet, almost Russian uh, mentality, where people don't want to be seen. They want to become invisible. They don't want to have house which sticks out because of the different color of fence or because of nice windows. So, I mean, this kind of collectiveness, it also, I mean, it, it, it is similar to uh, bees' life. <laughs> I mean, bees are the same. <laughs> It's, I mean, you have only the queen bee, the mother bee, who is uh, the head figure. But of course, I mean, in, uh, in in this situation, he associates himself with bees because he he is just ordinary working guy uh, who worked all his life, who never wanted anything, who never went to Crimea actually, uh, and always dreamt of uh, going to Crimea. He is learning actually. He is learning in a very slow way what is happening in Ukraine and which side he should be on. So even though it is set in the midst of this war, and then a war actually which has become a lot worse, there seems to still some hope in it, because even though the, the novel talks about the divisions in Ukrainian society by language, by region, ethnicity, that they managed, they, including Sergei, managed to overcome them. He befriends a, a Ukrainian soldier. He falls in love with a local person. Was there's some something you wanted to convey in Sergei's story at the end. Well, I mean, this is a, not a book about war, about battles. It's a human story. I mean, and humans are good naturally. They can be spoiled by politicians, by the systems, by the regimes and dictators, by the, the ideologies and populists. But in, in their nature, they are born like flowers. Even if you, yes, I mean, if, if you don't uh, give them water, they will try to survive and they will try to look nice and to behave nice. Hi, 
Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com. That's iq, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. What is, I, I want, I don't want to give away everything about uh, about uh, the Grey Bees story, but I'm going to just make a, a transition to Death and the Penguin by asking you, I was intrigued that in the bees, you use the bees, and then you use the penguin. I know from a, as a young child, you became very interested in the natural world. Do you see in the, the animal world or the non-human world a very useful device when you're writing these novels about, about humans, the human condition? Well, I mean, they, they, of course they are useful, but uh, uh, the reason why I have so many animals uh, in the books is not because I decided that it's useful to have animals. It's just because all my pets had very tragic destinies. Because most of my pets died because of neglect or because of accidents. And I think actually I started putting animals in my books just in order to, to get rid of my guilt, to give them second chance, to become, uh, to make them eternal as uh, literary characters. And Penguin Misha is one of them, but of course he's in the novel Not for Nothing. I mean, he's representative of penguins. Penguins are the only real collective animals and they are very similar in their behavior, in the patterns of behavior to Soviet people. I mean, the Soviet people were commanded by and programmed by the Communist Party what to do, how to spend holidays, where to go. The penguins were controlled and programmed by nature. So if you take away one penguin from the group and put it on the island with no other penguins, he will disorientate it. He will lose uh, the sense, actually, of direction and sense of use of life. And the same happened to Soviet people after the collapse of the Soviet Union, because they were raised to be uh, relying on each other. And suddenly, actually, in the crisis time in 1991, nobody wanted to help anybody because everybody wanted to survive on his own. So, I mean, everybody became separated penguins. And uh, in most of my books, actually, I mean, the animals are playing some kind of metaphorical social role. Yes, because in a sense of, and again, not to give away everything in the book, the book tells the story of a struggling novelist, Victor. He's in post-Soviet Kiev, and he suddenly finds himself writing obituaries for a local newspaper. And in doing so, he then discovers over time that he's unwittingly become a pawn as part of death squads of Ukrainian mafia and possibly even an accessory to murder. But he gives it barely a thought because he wants to preserve his peace of mind. He's thinking about the dacha. He's going to buy in the countryside. So he is, as you've just mentioned about the penguin, just wanting to be very much part of the collective. Victor is much the same. The, the Both of them living together are the same. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, Victor creates some kind of artificial family around himself for for psychological protection. I mean, uh, later actually, he gets uh, suddenly a, a girl, five years girl, Sonia, who is not his child, but uh, a local small mafiosi who helped uh, Victor once. Actually, asks him to uh, look after her for a couple of days, but he never returns. 
So he he needs a, a nanny to look after this girl and uh, comes a nanny who wants to become sort of wife or feels herself a wife and mother to this child and a pet penguin. So, so I mean, everything artificial in this world. Uh, and uh, that's why he is not taking seriously even his own role when he writes obituaries about uh, dedicated to still living VIPs. He's just doing his job, earning his $300 a month. And actually, and he is okay until he understands that somebody might be writing a, an obituary about him now. And so the whole thing is such a, a, a powerful metaphor. Everyone is pretending or living out a personality that they really aren't, but for the purposes of living a life that they're they're easy with, they all pretend that they are part of this of their new identities. It's quite extraordinary. But it seemed, is it when you you wrote, well, you wrote both Grady's and Death and the Penguin before the invasion of this year, but particularly with Death and the Penguin, the personalities you outline, do you see an echo of that, of what is happening in Russia today, where many people not really wanting to know, not like Victor, not pausing uh, for a moment to think about, in the case now, about this so-called special military operation and what it really is, because it would get in the way of their life. Well, in fact, actually, I mean, you are very right, because Ukrainian uh, society evolved far away from that state of, I would say, conscious ignorance of what is happening around. The Russian society never moved away from from 1990s, from the beginning of 1990s, when cruelty and violence was a, a daily occurrence on every street. So, I mean, Russians became more rich in big cities, more poor in the countryside, but they remain the same passive and the same passive observers who will not react until something happens to them. So, I mean, they will not help on the street if somebody is attacked because it's not them who, are, who is attacked. And what is happening now when they are escaping from the mobilization instead of protesting on the streets, it's also, I mean, it's the same reaction, away from danger. The danger is inevitable. I mean, Russians are fatalists. Ukrainians are not, because if the Ukrainians were fatalists, they would give up this war. But they actually, they joined in hundreds of thousands as volunteers. So so uh, thanks to you now, I have another vision also. <laughs> the other aspect of the book, which I found interesting, was written in 1996. And it's very much not just about sort of a Soviet mentality, but also about the mafia that developed in Ukraine. And of course, fast forward to the years just before the invasion, even the months and weeks before the invasion, all of the preoccupation or the concerns in Ukraine were about corruption, were about the oligarchs, were about those mafia, which still exist. Then with the invasion, suddenly the nation came together in a way like never before. Nobody talks except occasional references to oligarchs or corruption. When the war is over, will those old, that old darkness, those old uh, fault lines in Ukraine come back or will the war help to resolve them? Well, I mean, uh, the situation was changing every year in Ukraine, especially after Orange Revolution, after 2004, 2005. Uh, before 2004, actually, corruption was on the grassroots level in the schools, in the hospitals, among traffic police. And I remember that I was stopped when I was driving for no reason by policemen who were just expecting that I will pay 
out my way and further uh, drive further. As a writer, I was always carrying my books uh, in the car. So instead of money, I would say that I'm a writer. I don't have money. Would you like my book with a signature? And usually they would take it. But I mean, generally, after 2005, it never happened. I was never stopped because of nothing on the road. And the same, actually, with the schools and universities. The corruption was half away. I mean, the, on the higher level of politicians and state functioners, uh, it, it was always alive and probably is still alive. But since 2014, we have a huge number of Donbass war veterans who became a very powerful and militant part of society. They created their own literature. They set up their own publishing houses. They became business people and they started protecting each other from corruption and from criminals. And after this war, there will be more people like this, motivated war veterans who are not afraid of anything, who don't, don't care about any threats or any sort of importance of politicians. So I, I, I'm sure that Ukrainian society will deal with corruption much more efficiently after this war. So you, you remain hopeful about when this war will end, because all wars will eventually end, despite this catechism that, that's been forced upon Ukraine. You remain hopeful for your country's future? I'm very positive. I'm an optimist in general. But, I mean, the resilience, the defiance of Ukrainians and the way they were helping each other in the beginning of the war when I also became a displaced person, I mean, it sort of made me to believe that Ukraine will survive no sure, whatever happens, even against the country which is hundreds times bigger than Ukraine. Good. Well, I want to I want to share your your enthusiasm, your insights with with all of the people who've joined us today. I'm going to open it up our conversation up for some questions. We're going to go straight into back to being a novelist and this lovely quality of your books, which is to focus on the the absurdities of life. And there's a question which said which says, "How important is the absurd for you?" Well, I grew up in the Soviet Union. I mean, I spent 30 years of my life in the Soviet Union. And uh, in 1991, when Ukraine became independent, I felt a bit sort of sorry and sad, thinking that uh, there will be completely civilized life. There will be no absurdities happening around me because the Soviet Union will be gone. Well, thanks, uh, I don't know, to the tradition, to inertia of the society, the life uh, remained as absurd as it was before, but without Communist Party and without other things which were connected with the Soviet society. So, because uh, I started writing prose from inventing jokes, and to invent jokes, I was looking in their life for strange things which can become funny if you slightly change them. I, I'm still extremely happy when I find these elements in life around me, not even in Ukraine, but also uh, in other countries. So I mean, absurdity is something, uh, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, it's like uh, fertilizer for, for my imagination. So it's so that's interesting. So it actually is double-sided because the absurdities allow you to inject humor into your writing. And I, I think just for you personally, and I, we certainly see it in Ukraine, but maybe life in general, the importance of, of humor to survive these absurd kinds of life and, and systems. Well, humor is much more important than absurdities because actually humor is a remedy. Uh, it's a weapon. I mean, if you want to stay sane, you go for good jokes. I mean, you, you are trying to sort of find something funny even about the most sad situation. 
Because otherwise, if you become sad, if you start crying, if you become depressed, you are giving up. You, you, you just uh, say goodbye to your life. That's so good to hear. I always describe humor as, a, as a, a language, a universal language. And I understand you speak six languages, so you can add seven because you speak fluently the language of humor. <laughs> we have a lovely question from Charlie. because, And I love this question because, I well, I love it, but don't love it because it's got a note of sadness in it. Uh, Charlie says, Grey Bees already has a nostalgic feel as a novel. Gravies was set, of course, in 2017 in the Donbass. When you think back to writing it, do you feel nostalgic? I don't feel nostalgic, but I feel sorry for my characters because this gray zone doesn't exist anymore. Except one small part, the uh, district, a part of the town of Deevka in Donbass, which is still under Ukrainian control, but it's empty. I mean, there are no people living there. It's just actually a battlefield that is bombarded all the time and nobody can control it. So uh, I do feel sad, but I don't feel nostalgic. Maybe I would say I feel nostalgic for the beginning of 2000 when I was traveling in peaceful Donbass and when I saw actually people which were different from people of other regions, but they were nice. They were hardworking. They were friendly. And it's actually their life, their region is destroyed. Do you think you might have to do uh, a sequel to it? We'll all want to know what happens to Sergei in 2022. Uh, I don't know. I was asked several times about sequel. I can think about this when the war is over. But again, I mean, if, if the war is over, so everything depends on how the war ends. And it actually is quite painful to, to think about the characters, about potential prototypes of these characters. Would they survive this war? Are they deported by Russians to Sakhalin to border with China or they are still somewhere in Donbass but uh, already in a different place in somebody else's house and village? And of course, the bees, what happens to the bees? We have a question here. They like our conversation. That's all thanks to you, Andre, described as a great conversation. You are often compared to Bulgakov, who of course is the great Russian writer, or Murakami, who's the great Japanese writer. I think you're a very Ukrainian writer. I don't think you're either Japanese or Russian, but the comparisons are often made. Are there any novelists who have inspired you or influenced you? Well, I mean, Bulgakov definitely influenced me, but less than Andrei Platonov, Daniel Harms, Franz Kafka, Knut Gamsun. I'm just thinking, I mean, maybe Gogol also, because, I mean, Gogol is a very Ukrainian writer. In classical Russian literature, you will not find humor or magic humor, only in Gogol's works. And he made, actually, Ukraine fashionable among Russian aristocracy, which is not very good, I think, because since then, actually, Russians cannot live without Ukraine. Aha. Uh -huh. And do you think that the... I mean, obviously, your life has been about this, about writing and these inspired by these great novelists, but now that you've had to make that shift to a different kind of writing... Do you think that you'll be more willing to explore these different genres going forward or you're really looking forward to the day when you can just go back, you know, sitting in your office next to San Sofia and writing fictional stories? Well, I mean, in the last years, I read much more nonfiction than fiction. And among my favorite books, I can definitely name East-West Street by Philip Sands and uh, the King of America by Martin Pollack from Austria. It shows that actually the, the nonfiction books can be more interesting and more exciting than novels, than fiction. So, I mean, uh, I don't think I can write nonfiction on this 
highest level. So I will keep on reading nonfiction. But now I don't mind. I mean, I like writing essays. I, I like real life to follow it, to observe it, and, uh, and then to write about it. So, so I think that the, the Diary of an Invasion is definitely not the last nonfiction book to be published. And the books that you've been reading are very much connected to the situation at hand. Philippe Sand's book, part of it is in Lviv uh, and about his own family connections there. So are you reading books which somehow can, you know, you're again reaching back into history to make sense of what's happening now? Yes, but I'm interested not only in Ukrainian history. For the book, which is called Schengen Story or Vilnius, Paris, London, which is not published yet in English. I, I did a lot of research into the history of the First World War in Northern France. And uh, I find actually history fascinating because the politicians are trying all, uh, quite often, I mean, and in Russia always, to rewrite the history. And then actually, when you know the official version, you, you accept it as a true version. And it's so wonderful to discover that actually it is a lie and you can go deeper and you can find... Uh, the descriptions of uh, real events. I think it's like archaeology. I was dreaming as a child to become an archaeologist, to dig out the treasures. And for me, actually, now the historical knowledge is the treasure that I want to dig out. Oh, well, you do a lot of, you do a lot of digging out to finding the great threads and, and trends, but also these, as we've been discussing, these little details, like those taxes uh, that you, you found out about. I want to ask you, you know, the writer's life can be a very solitary life, as you know so well, but now you've, you have a very public life, a very, you're be, you have to be very extroverted. You're going from capital to capital going back and forth to Kyiv or to back and forth to Ukrainian cities. You're speaking about Ukraine everywhere you go. How have you find this new part of your life? Is it a difficult part? Is it scary sometimes? Is it something you're, you're throwing yourself into? Oh, I was uh, well-trained by book tours in Germany from, the nine, from 1999, actually. I was asked by my Swiss-German publisher to learn German in order to explain my books to German audience. And it was interesting because I was trying then to explain my books to German audience and the German readers were asking me about corruption in Ukraine, Chernobyl disaster and other things. So actually, I'm used to talk not about my books, but to talk about my country. I mean, it's in the peaceful time, it's a pleasure and it is a challenge because you want to be honest and you don't want to give uh, only chocolates to the listeners because you don't uh, treat them as children. I mean, everybody is adult. Everybody understands that every country has its issues. But in the times of war, of course, I mean, uh, to find a balance, uh, to be honest and to be patriotic. And I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting because I, I can see now that uh, sometimes actually even I, because of, of my attitude, I, I censor the information I get because, I mean, the, the, the official media, the Ukrainian media, is giving Ukrainians mostly good news from the front lines. I know where to find bad news on BBC, on CNN, on Reuters, and I don't go there because I want to stay with good news. I know that something also very bad is happening, that more than 9,000 Ukrainian soldiers are killed, that uh, this morning, actually, Russian missiles did manage to blow up a munition depot in Odessa region and there was a huge detonation and the inhabitants of the village next door were evacuated. I mean, this is a, a tragic thing. 
Uh, but I mean, this is this is what is life about. I mean, the truth, and to convey the truth, to tell the the balance uh, story, to explain what is happening while remaining Ukrainian, remaining actually the citizens of my country, and remaining an optimist. I mean, it's quite quite uh, a task. But you do it with such such energy and enthusiasm. We have a question from Kolia who says, do you think a Russian will survive as a spoken and written language in Ukraine? Well, 40% of Ukrainians speak Russian. I mean, uh, many people uh, who are living in the Russian-speaking cities like Kharkiv, like Odessa, I mean, they will carry on speaking Russian, but many of younger people will also learn Ukrainian, or I think they already speak Ukrainian because actually Ukrainian is quite fashionable language among the young Ukrainians. So it will remain. It will be less used. I think actually in the future we will be talking about 20% and then 10% of population. And then it will be a minority language. And there is nothing bad about it. Because, I mean, we have minority languages in Ukraine, like Crimean Tatar language and Hungarian and Gagauz and others. In this sense, uh, Russian will not disappear because... There are several millions of ethnic Russians who will preserve the language. But at the same time, they will not preserve the connection with Russian culture. So, I mean, Russian language in Ukraine is not connected with Russian literature, with Russia. And it will be even further away from Russia with the, the years to come. In fact, actually, it's interesting because, I mean, Ukrainians are very proud always to express externally they have been Ukrainian, especially during the festive seasons. I mean, they have embroidered shorts, vishivanki, beautiful white shirts with different decorations. And uh, Ukraine, I mean, Russians historically also have their own national shirt, which is called Kasavarotka, and nobody would wear it, neither. I mean, I don't know about Russia, but no ethnic Russian in Ukraine would wear it, maybe except for the, the religious old believers who live on the border with Romania, who escaped from Catherine II in 18th century. They are sort of special Russians. They might have them at home. But generally, I mean, ethnic Russians and Russian speakers, it's not a minority issue. It's a social phenomena. When this social phenomena becomes minority phenomena, sort of when Armenians and Jews and Greeks stop speaking Russian between each other and start speaking Ukrainian, will use Ukrainian as inter-ethnic language, then actually... The Russian will stay only among ethnic Russians who decide to keep it. You say that even with a smile. Um, Tilly is asking a question I think many are asking, both inside and outside the country. Would you support any kind of negotiated deal between Ukraine and Russia to bring an end to the war? Well, you cannot have a deal with Putin, who was lying actually one day before the war, that there will be no war and no aggression. It would be suicidal to have a deal with him. The deal with the next leader is possible, but we don't know who will be next one. I mean, there will be probably quite a bloody fight in Kremlin between different groups uh, to get to power there. So, I mean, of course, uh, in the end, there will be negotiations, but uh, I cannot predict with whom and uh, what conditions will be laid for these negotiations. And a question from Mikhail is very much picks up on, on your comments. He asks, could a defeated Russia be more dangerous to Ukraine and the rest of the world than a Russia that walks away with something? Uh, 
again, actually, uh, we should follow now the events in Russia. I mean, Russia didn't protest against killing Ukrainians, but I mean, now they are sort of escaping, they are protesting against mobilization, and maybe, I mean, these processes will change something uh, inside Russia. For Ukraine, a victory is just a return of Ukrainian territory, nothing else. I mean, Ukrainians don't want Russian part of territory, even if it used to belong to Ukraine many centuries ago. I mean, I understand actually when people say that it is dangerous to, to upset Russia, they mean Putin, they don't mean Russia. And Putin is not Russia. I mean, Russians are now dying for their motherland, for Putin, like the Soviets were dying for the motherland and for Stalin. But Putin is not Russia. Putin actually doesn't really care about future of Russia, otherwise he wouldn't start this war. He wouldn't actually create so many problems for economy in Russia. He wouldn't get rid of ethnic Yakuts, Kalmyks, Chechens, and uh, Murats, sending them to be slaughtered in Ukraine. So, I mean, he is actually trying to solve now a future problem of uh, separatist movements inside Russia by actually mobilizing this ethnic minorities and sending them to the front lines. It's, uh, it's very difficult to look into the future, but we had a, a question from Rose. Uh, she likes our conversation. Thank you for describing it as fascinating. It is indeed fascinating, if depressing at times, very hopeful at others, as life is. She wants to know how has the war affected your creativity? She asked if you were planning another novel. You already said that the novel you began before the war, it's safely somewhere and you're going to return to it to finish it. But maybe during the war, an idea for another novel, if your creativity is still intact, is somewhere percolating. Well, I mean, I'm very happy that I started writing three years ago about 1919. I mean, I got so deep into the material of that time and the texture uh, of this time. I, I learned a lot from archives. And uh, I'm still sort of, uh, I'm still there in 1919. And, and the East past actually keeps me sane and reminds me about uh, the necessity to write about this past. So uh, I think if I didn't have this project in my head, I wouldn't feel so confident uh, about my future novels. But now, actually, I know what I want to come to, to uh, after the war. And uh, I have no doubts uh, about it. I mean, the, the war distracted me and distracts me and actually sort of keeps me away from this material, from these novels. But once the war is over, I will go back. Something to look, something to look forward to. We have a very practical question from someone who hasn't given a name. Given that it turns out the world is dependent on Ukraine's harvest, the, the breadbasket, as they often call it, will it be possible to have a harvest next year? Will it be possible to plant the crops? I know you're not an agronomist, but you're very much interested in the natural world. Well, I, I'm following all the stories, including actually agricultural stories. <laughs> and I have a friend in Kiev who is representatives of Dutch company who is supplying farmers with uh, seeds, with the high quality seeds of new sorts of wheat and buckwheat and everything else. And he was even managing to deliver the seeds to the farmers who remained on occupied territories. There will be crop next year. But the problem is now that probably 20% of the surface of Ukraine is filled with shells and mine, many of which are unexploded. So, I mean, we will have victims, and we have already many victims among the farmers and tractor drivers, but it will 
stay on, and some of the fields actually are blocked. I mean, the military will not allow to work on them, so the crop will be smaller. And uh, depending on the weather, it can be even smaller if the winter is too soft, too mild. We have time, I think, just to squeeze in one last question and a short answer from Mary Mariana. You talk about Russian people and Ukrainian people as having distinctly different mentalities. To what extent do you believe this is universally true? Universally in, in which sense? I thought maybe in the sense of all, all of them, or are there things that, even though you talk about the individualism of Ukrainians, the collective mindset of the Russians, are there still ties that bind similarities? Well, the, the ties, I mean, uh, Russians and Ukrainians used to love strong drinks, but actually this changed also because now beer and wine is more fashionable than vodka in Ukraine. And Ukrainians were always trying to eat a lot when they were drinking. So, I mean, the food is much more important for Ukrainians than for Russians because Ukrainians survived artificial famine of 1932-33. Generally, Ukrainians were always anarchists and uh, never had respect for central power or for their leaders or for the Soviet leaders because, I mean, they used to elect the hetmans, the heads of their territory, and in two or three days after elections, they would try to topple them and to elect somebody else. Sometimes I think, actually, Ukrainians today elect presidents just uh, choosing those whom they will hate after the elections, after the victory of this person. Because, I mean, they sometimes, like Poroshenko, I mean, he got uh, more than 50% in first go percent vote during the war. And almost immediately, everybody started criticizing him. In Russia, you accept, I mean, the Tsar is given by God. You love him and you defend him and you do what he says. If he is very nasty, you kill him and you, lo you love the next Tsar. This is not applicable to Ukrainians. Ukrainians will not come close to the Tsar. I'm very sad to say that our hour has come to an end, but do you want to leave us with one little last gem that kind of keeps that big smile on your face looking forward to Ukraine? And of course, the Ukraine war affects so many of us um, in so many parts of the world. Is there one last thought you'd like to leave with us? I would ask you actually to read more nonfiction books about Ukraine because there are wonderful books in English. I mean, like Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands, An Applebaum's uh, Red Hunger, East-West Street by Philip Sands, The Gates of Europe by Sergei Plochy. People should see the difference in history, uh, should understand that actually Ukrainian history is not part of Russian. It can be quite separate. And, of course, I mean, people should understand Ukrainian culture. Do you know that Ukrainian classical writers are still not translated in many languages? So whenever people think about classical writer of Ukraine, they think immediately about Russian classic because Russia was always funding translations, was supporting, promoting its, their culture. Ukrainians were not doing this, unfortunately, but it's high time to do that. So it's good to read book. And of course, we should all eat borscht, Ukrainian borscht. Andrei Kurkov, thank you very much. My thanks to Andrei Kurkov, to our audience and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.